All right, good morning, BK Church. All right, before I get started, I wanted to take this opportunity to um, honor our brother Sean Stanback. <laughs> now, all right, we have some gifts here, but uh, of course, it's, it's the Nets, and there's a, a great Brooklyn book, but I, I want to present those to you. Sean is a, an incredible, just a great servant. He's been here in the Brooklyn region for, well, since he was 17 years old, <laughs> and, and that's a long time, but just, an, just a, a great servant. Um, I'll tell you, he's um, great on base. Always, if I forget to ask him to, to, to show up, he'll be here, and usually before I am. <laughs> um, but what's all, also, I just, I can remember a couple years ago, sending our teens to, some of our teens to, to camp, and at the last minute, <laughs> with a, just a couple hours notice, he volunteered to take the five, six hour round trip drive. You know, that's a, a servant's heart. So we love you, Sean. Let's, let's just show our appreciation. Amen. So today's his last day with us. He, next week he's in Philly. Amen. All right. Thank you. Man, but it is uh, bittersweet. Those are the announcements that uh, don't really like making. But um, we're continuing on in our series, uh, The Call to Follow Jesus. And last week, Rick did a great job with the uh, first part of the call to love one another. And I'm going to try to, to take care of, of part two of this as we continue on uh, the call to love one another, part two. And I want to start off just by reading a scripture, starting off in Ephesians chapter six. So if you can turn there or you can swipe there, we're at Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10. Actually, I need my Bible. <laughs> Hampton, can you do me a favor in my bag? I have an old Bible. I know I'm going to need that too. But Ephesians 6 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, thank you, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all 
of the Lord's people. You know, this is uh, just at the outset, it's, it's, that, it's the reminder that what we deal with is a spiritual battle. Every event, every interaction and relationship, you know, if you have a conflict, if you have an issue, what we deal with, it's not about people, but there's something deeper in it. Now, here's a true story I have to tell you just to kind of set things up. Um, and this, this is a story from my youth when I was a teenager some time ago, and I, I lived in uh, South Jamaica, Queens. And, all right, <laughs> amen, the South Side. Um, and as a teenager, I, I used to love books. I would um, take the 30, 40-minute bus ride to get to the Queens Public Library, if any of you guys know what that is. And across the street, like right across, there's the, the bus terminal. So the day that I went, this particular day it was snowing, or it had been snowing and it was icy, and I carried a, you know, I was a real skinny teenager, I said that was a long time ago, skinny teenager with um, a heavy book bag with all sorts of books. So I would take the books that I, I took out like two weeks before, bring them to the library, return those, and get a whole bunch of new books. So I, once I'm done, I check, check the books out. I've got a very heavy book bag, as usual, you know, on my back. And I'm leaving the library, and, you know, it's, it had snowed. It's, the snow is done, but it's just that slushy, gray snow experience, like if you, if you can remember that, or we'll see it soon. <laughs> and so I, I see that the bus that I need to take is uh, about to turn the corner and to pull in, and uh, if you know anything about waiting for a bus way out in Queens, it's going to be a while for the next one. So I decided, all right, with my heavy book bag, I'm going to run across the street and uh, kind of make my way over there. So as I'm running, you know, I'm trying to balance things out with the book bag. And um, here's, it starts to get funny because here for me, things got a little cinematic in my head. And that time slowed down. And as I'm moving and trying to run to catch this bus, and you can see in Queens, people are very polite it's interesting, it's not a Brooklyn thing, but everybody lines up for the bus in Queens. So as I'm running, you know, and I'm trying to, to get to the bus, and I see the, the line of people, and I'm, try, I'm not going to miss it. As I'm moving, somehow my feet stop moving, but I'm still going. And so I feel that, and everything, again, is slowed down, and the, the weight of my book bag is kind of pulling me back. And... Before I realize it, I'm flat on my back, and I'm still moving forward. <laughs> and I, I can't make this part up, but as I'm sliding forward, it's like playing baseball and sliding into home plate, and I'm about to slide into this big old slush pile in front of the bus, and to my right, I can see, you know, an older, I'm sure Caribbean woman who's got like a bunch of bags on her arm. And she's holding her stomach, but as she watches me, she's kind of tracing my, as I slide down. And she's laughing. And 
So I slide all over, I slide, slide past the front door of the bus, past the crowd of people who are watching me as I was trying to get to the line, which I overshot, and now I'm sliding into this, this all gray, wet, you know, thing of slush. And um, I never even got on that bus. <laughs> you know, uh, at that point, everybody's seen you. My pants and my back are wet. I've got slush underneath my, you know, into the boot. It's a bad scene. But I tell that story for a reason because our relationships, our one another relationships can be like that. Where we, you know, you're, you're going along trying to get to the goal of a great relationship. And, but you got your issues that weigh you down. Your issues on, uh, that are on your back, you try to navigate things, but then you also have the devil and the ice that he sl- lays out before you. And if you get caught the wrong way, he and his guys are offside just kind of laughing at you as you slide past your goal. You know, in our world today, there is a battle. Now, it's a spiritual battle, but it is a battle for truth. And the issues and the challenges that we contend with, again, like I said, it's never really about people. It's not. It is a spiritual event. Everything that you deal with behind it, behind the conflict, that is Satan, it's demons that are trying to derail you. As Paul describes it, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We've got people that are, that are really rooting against us. And it's important to frame things scripturally from the start. Because some of the things I'm going to talk about might seem like it's about people, but it's not about people. No, but we have to see things for what it is. It is the work of the devil. And if you don't get that yet, hopefully you'll get it soon. Uh, The Greek word for devil is diabolos, and that means liar or slanderer. And the word Satan means adversary. And he first shows up as the serpent in Genesis 3, deceiving Eve to disobey God and eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, and you can hear him. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree of the garden? Always questioning. Is that really what God said? But from the beginning, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. You know, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, Paul describes him as the ruler of the air. You know, his influence is prevalent in the world around us, misleading people into lives of sin. Now, look over at uh, John 18, verse 37 and 38, and we get the interaction that Jesus has with Pilate, and uh, Pilate's trying to figure him out, and he says, in verse 37, he says, you are a king then. Pilate said, Pilate, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. You you can stop right there. What is truth? Pilate's response was really snide. You can hear that. He didn't even wait for an answer. 
But for Pilate, the truth was relative. He knew Jesus was innocent, but he turned Jesus over to the Jewish leader's truth. What is truth? You know, even on Twitter, like just on November 10th, there's a verified Twitter account that posed as the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly, and they wrote in a viral tweet, we are excited to announce insulin is free now. And Eli Lilly's uh, shares plunged by about $22 billion the next day. Wow, truth matters. You know, in the state of Virginia, there's a proposed uh, school curriculum that doesn't mention Martin Luther King at all. How do you do that? But there's an ongoing battle for truth that we're not always aware of. We don't always see what's going on. We can't see the spiritual world. But I have a question for us, and it's rhetorical. But if the devil tells a lie, do we need to believe it? Of course that's no. (laughs) But today I've got three points, but there are two lies and one truth that we're going to discuss. There are two lies and one truth. And the first lie, let me get a sip of water before I say this. All right, you see it already. It is the lie of racial inferiority. Say that again. Mm. That's right. Because in dealing with the lie of racial inferiority, first we have to understand what God's design is. I don't need to go into a lengthy explanation of what racism is. I think we're all pretty well diverse with that. You live in the U.S., But look at Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, verse 27, and I'm reading from the uh, ESV, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he he created him. Male and female, he created them. If, If you ever wanted to push back or to explain biblically why the concept of racism is just flawed, is look at what God's plan is. You know, we're made in God's image. From the outset, we bear his image. So there's no concept of race, but simply that Adam and Eve were made in God's image. All right, so turn over or swipe over to Galatians. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, the passage we're really familiar with, And it describes, as Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. You know, it's, it's interesting. I looked up, again, I said we don't need to, to define it, but I looked up the definition of, of hatred, and it says and it's an intense dislike or ill will. And then, you know, at the, below the definition where they give you an example, what it said is racial hatred. That's like the top example of what hatred is, is all is connected to race. 
And that's a very interesting thing because racism equals hatred equals sin. That's a very simple equation. Racism equals hatred equals sin. Racism does not please God. And that's something that I might feel like, wow, you don't really need to say that. But sometimes it feels like you need to do that. You need to clarify that. You can't. I mean, it's impossible to be racist and be a Christian. You know, it's just not going to work. I mean, we could look at our world today and see people practice racism under the guise of Christianity. And that's a scary thing. But anyone who follows Jesus should be careful to call that out and to make the distinction. We have to protect the word. We have to protect the honor of what Christianity is all about and the truth. Because it's easy to get things twisted because Satan seeks to deceive. But we, act, we have to actually actively use the Bible to connect to the truth. You know, the world around us is crazy. I, I, want, I want you to think about, I mean, I work in real estate, and one of the things that, that um, I'm sure that you could see in the news, you could see in uh, the Brooklyn neighborhoods around you is just uh, gentrification and that the whole process. So it's a challenging thing working in the real estate industry, but also understanding the effects um, that it can have on our area. I, I remember what this neighborhood was like uh, 25 years ago. It was not like this. We didn't have such a great uh, uh, developed subway station at, at Atlantic Terminal. It was pretty grimy. <laughs> and I have to admit that um, when the developers came in and started to you know, built, built all these great properties and um, made the station much nicer. I had my own issues to contend with. Like, why, why couldn't we have this before? All right, don't, don't encourage me with that. <laughs> I got my issues. Um, I've heard uh, one of the commentators I, I like to listen to, he, he described, uh, he, he defined it also as microcolonialism. You know, and it does have a negative connotation of outsiders who come in and take over. You know, just a few blocks away, you know, Spike Lee, you know, his dad has a place right across from uh, the park. He used to play his bass all the time. Uh, but once the neighborhood started to change, they actually had the police called him to stop playing the bass. So it's challenging. You think about that negative aspect of outsiders uh, coming in and taking over. Now, this past Friday morning, I was with a client uh, who's relocating from England, and he happens to be white. Now, we were waiting in front of a, a house on St. Mark's Place that's um, just between 4th Avenue and 3rd. And if you know the uh, geography there, you have the Gowanus houses nearby. So we were waiting for another broker to come and to give us access to the property and take a look. And um, as we're waiting, we're talking, a couple of guys start walking from 4th Avenue, start to come past us. 
And I hear one of them just loudly saying, keep Brooklyn pure. And, you know, the other things I can't really say, but he kept, you know, he's talking to keep Brooklyn pure. And he's looking at me and uh, I'm with my client. It's a very awkward professional experience. Now, if this guy knew my client, he would really, you know, this guy is definitely an out, what you would call an ally. But just on the surface, it's like, okay, somebody else is coming in. And they're going to take over our stuff. You know, but Satan will use his own lies to colonize Christianity. He'll he'll work to redefine the truth into a lie. To pervert the righteousness of God into mere politics or just a tool for hatred. So we have to be mindful of this because the truth matters. You know, but where, where does the concept of race even come from? You know, because they didn't have to deal with that in the, the early church. But the first historical account of race comes from uh, Pope Nicholas V, who uh, granted Portugal the right to enslave sub-Saharan Africans in 1452. Now, all right, so get that. The Pope gives permission to Portugal to enslave Africans. And, that's, and from that point on, you have the concept of, all right, they're black, they're different, they're not good, they're brutes, we can enslave them. We can, we can Christianize this group of people. They're less than us, they're inferior. That's where it starts. And it's got a powerful sticking point. You know, race is a tool that the devil has used effectively to divide, deceive and to wreak havoc in our world. So you see it in uh, 1452. You see it in, the, it gets mirrored here in the United States. And uh, Christopher Columbus, they're, they're similar. If you look at Christopher Columbus and the history, initially when he, he arrived to, in the area, as he wrote back about the people being beautiful and they're so gracious and kind, but when it came time to find a new source of income, then they're black. They're no good. We need, to, we need to enslave them. So it's got a powerful sticking point. And then we go through our own history here in the U.S., but you see what, what the devil has done. And I have to restate that everything that we deal with, isn't, it's not about people. You know, racism and hatred behind all of that is simply the devil. It's just another tool to divide and keep people at odds and separate. Now, here in our churches, we're engaging in a crucial conversations on how we can do better to address racism, discrimination, and prejudice you know, that we, we're striving to shed from our own characters as we grow to become more like Christ together. So we're setting up our own squad. I know we've been talking about this for a while, and squad stands for social, cultural unity and diversity. Now, Rick, Rick remains going to be heading that up. And um, please be praying for him and the composition of that team that we're going to pull from our congregation. But we're going to, we need a team like that, and we've, we spent some time. It took longer to even get to this point because trying to figure out, well, what, what, what can, what's going to be the purpose of this group? You know, um, 
And like even the message that I'm preaching now, I probably had about seven or eight iterations of it. And I had to recognize the, the audience that I have. It'd be different if I were in a different state. I'm not, I can't, I'm not gonna say the same things I would to another group, but for us, all right, what do we, what is our squad gonna be? What is our squad going, what need is it going to speak to? You know, we, we still have to pray and figure that, that one out. But the impacts of, of racism and hatred, uh, you can definitely feel that here. Some of the things that I, I think about is, you know, like I suspect that there are instances where a Christian who is African-American might feel insecure in sharing her faith with someone who doesn't look like her. I suspect that could be possible. You know, there might also be disciples who are non-white who don't want to have to interact with people that don't look like them. You know, that, that could be true too. You know, the lie of racial inferiority creates some complex issues that we haven't fully realized as a church. Like, I, I don't know for sure how it affects everyone. I know how the things that I have to fight past in my own evangelism and interaction with people, you know, the things, the lies that I have to push past in my own head, or think about, all right, this person that I'm talking to, how do they perceive me because of all of the lies, you know, that, that the devil has put into our, our culture? It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I don't have the answers for that, but I know that racism directly affects our evangelism. There's no way around it. You know, we used to meet in Park Slope, and um, the demographic in that neighborhood is different. And, you know, the interactions there, it's interesting. And I don't have the answer for that, but I, I do know that sometimes you can see in instances where Let's say if, you, if, if you're affluent, sometimes you don't see the need for God. And, and having that conversation with somebody doesn't always go across the way that you need to. I remember having a, a, a conversation, reaching out to the, this guy who was white, but I was so excited about it. And he was, you know, we were somewhere in Park Slope near to the building. And I, as I explained to him, you know, we meet at Sunday, it's at, it's at 10 a.m. It's just a few blocks from where we are right now. You gonna come? And he's like, no. <laughs> and he said, but we, you looked like you were excited. He said, no, I'm excited because you're excited. But no, I'm not going. <laughs> and he didn't really see the need for that. You know, racism directly affects the demographic makeup of this room. And I want you to think about that too. Racism directly affects how we run our ministry. Here's an interesting thing to think about. And this isn't wrong. It's just something that, that we, we might want to consider. Think about our neighborhood-based Bible talks. It's a great idea to do things locally and uh, where people don't have to go travel very far and you, you uh, get to know your neighbors. I mean, that's the goal. But are we in, in the process of doing that, simply reinforcing some of the socioeconomic ills of our neighborhood, of our borough? And does that then kind of constrict people into places where they don't actually get to interact with people that are different? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just asking. I'm just saying. It's just something to think about. 
Does that approach then hinder our own efforts at, at really diversifying our ministry? And those are great questions for our squad team to consider. That might be something for us all to pray about because we do need wisdom in, in figuring that out because it's complex. God wants us to do more. I know that. We're not where we should be. But there are things that we don't know <laughs> that we don't know. You know, that's a funny phrase. You don't know what you don't know. But in, a, in the midst of a world divided by racism, God does have a plan for us. You know, and in John 17, even as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, and he prays to his Father, and he says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be, they may be one as we're one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God's plan is really clear. It does involve us, amen, but a unified church points to God's love for us, but it also confirms to the world around us that, that God sent Jesus. You know, when you look at a group of people say, here in New York who come from different backgrounds, no matter how homogenous we might look, we're all different. We've got different experiences. But when that group presents in a way that, that is truly unified, people outside take note. People outside know there, there's got to be a God because this, this doesn't happen by itself. You know, our Brooklyn demographics as of 2022, and you can take a look at that, um, White, 49.5%, uh, parenthetically, non-Hispanic, 35.8%, African-American, 35.8%, Asian, 11.3%, and Native American, 1%. That's something to ponder. If we look around this room, we don't reflect that. And we haven't reflected the makeup of our borough in quite some time. And, and that's not an accusation, but an observation. But we have to deal with the elephant in the room. All right, you see it? You might not. You know, this, this is not a black church. All right, this, this is not a black church. Yes, we have a predominantly black congregation, but the Bible does not call us to be a black church. So the challenge for us is to, for all of us, is to engage with the world around us in a way that might make us uncomfortable. It might make us uncomfortable because of all of the, all the things that I stated earlier, how the racism and how it gets into your head, how it gets into the minds of the people around us. 
And at the same time, it doesn't absolve us from the Great Commission. It doesn't absolve us from going out and sharing with people who, who don't look like us of all nations. That's the call. That's the, the, the challenge laid out before us by Jesus. And it applies to me as well. You know, but let's not be comfortable with how things are or the way they have been. You know, you can get comfortable and we're used to this. We're, I know you. I, I, I've known you for a long time. This, this is comfortable. I know who I'm going to see when I come to church. That, that's good. But we should be at a place where we see more faces that we don't recognize every week. We should be at a place where we see more faces that don't look like us exactly every week. And to get to that place, we have to be uncomfortable. It takes intentionality. You know, I don't even want to draw solace from how our congregation in Brooklyn used to look 30 years ago. Because I can tell you it didn't look like this. But we have to deal with where we are now. And again, change takes intentionality. We will have to apply new efforts to our evangelism. You know, think about this. Relationships will have to be built so that trust is gained and depth developed. I mean, let me say that again because that's important. That's going to take, it's not going to be fast necessarily. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's going to take establishing a true friendship with somebody who doesn't look like you in a very intentional way as you spend time together, you have meals together, you might work together, but it takes time, it takes effort. It's not easy, and, you know, it probably shouldn't, it shouldn't be. But to be honest, we have to be honest with our own respective issues. You know, you've got your own stuff that you're carrying around on your back. You know, we have to check the cultural bias that you grew up with at the door of discipleship. What did, what did you grow up with? I mean, I grew up in a Jamaican household, and there are all sorts of names for folks from this island and that island and things that I can't say from here and I can't say since, you know, 30-whatever years after being baptized. I can't say those now. But there's no place for bias as a disciple. You know, the two, the two just cannot stand. Jesus exemplified that in his interaction with the Samaritan women in John 4. You know, nobody, when, they, when his guys came back, nobody asked him, why, why are you talking to her? So I'm sure they thought about it. But nobody wants to be the one that Jesus uh, rebukes. In Luke 4, I mean, you don't have to turn there, but, but note this. In Luke 4, where, where Jesus is talking about a prophet has no honor in his hometown, he tells his own people that he's going to go help the Gentiles the same way that Elijah and Elisha did. And after that, they got so mad, they tried to, you know, throw him off a cliff. In Luke 7, you see Jesus helping a Roman soldier. All right, this is before the day of Pentecost. Jesus modeled interaction with those who were different than him. 
And it is time for us to keep up with him. You know, we see Jesus do it. We see the example in the book of Acts. We can see they go kind of back and forth. And, and you know, you can see after the day of Pentecost, you can see Peter's own, uh, not racism, but his own issues with culture pop up. And that gets addressed. And they move forward. And that's what we have to do. In order to keep up with Jesus, we, when we see our own blind spots, and we see when you actually get sight of the ice that's going to take you out, you've got to deal with that. Sidestep it. Get past it. But keep moving forward. So first off, we have to deal with the lie of racial inferiority. That's, that's the first lie. But the second point and the second lie is the lie of your individual rights. I'm trying. <laughs> Look over at 1 Corinthians 10. Now I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. Um, so Paul says, You say, under grace there are no rules, and we're free to do anything we please. Not exactly. Because not everything promotes growth in others. Your slogan, we're allowed to do anything we choose, may be true, but not everything causes the spiritual investment, advancement of others. So don't always seek what's best for you at the expense of another. Yes, you're free to eat anything without worrying about your conscience for the earth and all its abundance belongs to the Lord. So if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, go ahead and eat whatever's served without asking questions concerning where it came from. But if he goes out of his way to inform you that the meat was actually an offering sacrifice to idols, then you should pass, not only for his sake, but because of his conscience. I'm talking about someone else's conscience, not yours. What good is there in doing what you please if it's condemned by someone else? So I voluntarily participate. So if I voluntarily participate, why should I be judged for celebrating my freedom? Whether you eat or drink, live your life in a way that glorifies and honors God. And make sure that you're not offending Jews or Greeks or any part of God's assembly over your personal preferences. Follow my example, for I try to please everyone in all things rather than putting my liberty first. I sincerely attempt to do anything I can so that others may be saved. It's a great way to listen to that passage in a in that translation. You know, and in, if you look through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, chapters 8 through 10, Paul makes a key argument about our own freedom, but also our responsibility to the people around us. And he makes the argument that our freedom should not come at the expense of someone else. Someone else. You know, rather than putting my freedom first. You know, so here he's talking about food uh, used in a pagan sacrifice, but there are definitely applications for us uh, in the modern day. You know, in, in the time of COVID, this, these chapters rang out for me. And let me preface this by saying what I'm about to say is not political, though sometimes it's hard to pull the politics out of just the truth in our own lives, but protocols like Masking or social distancing, you know, things that were designed to protect and keep everyone safe, 
became politicized, and the spirit of rather than putting my freedom first was lost. But putting the needs of others first is the Jesus way. So no matter where we are, we have to remember that. You know, in Philippians 2, again, Paul describes this. says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, capital S Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the, nature, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, the, the picture that comes to, to my mind when I, when I hear this is, is this old meatloaf, meatloaf song. <laughs> you might remember it. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. <laughs> and it's such a crazy title, but it's such a contradiction. Like, I'll do anything for love. I'm not going to do that. You know, where, where do you draw the line in your love? What's, what's that sticking point for you? What's like, all right, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life, as Jesus said, but this is as far as I'm going to go before it gets really uncomfortable for me. Value others above yourselves. Like, we don't know the future. And, and I, don't, I hope we don't have to lock down or go back to uh, online services uh, exclusively. But the lesson from these passages provide a template for what our behavior should be. You know, I, I don't take any of our time together for granted. I think the last time that I spoke this way was late March of 2020. And I know I looked out at all of you guys in my own head knowing we're not going to be back here next week. And we weren't. So every, every time that we're, we're together in this way with God, man, that is, that's a treat. That's an incredible, incredible privilege because things can change in our world. And we have no idea when that's going to happen. But we need to be people who are about self-denial, putting the needs of others above our own, and following in the steps of Jesus. So we have the lie of racial inferiority and the lie of our individual rights, but that's enough lies. Let's focus on the truth. And here, here's, I think, where things get encouraging, because as we shift into uh, preparing to take the Lord's Supper together, it's really about, I want us to focus on the truth 
of you and me and God. The truth about you and me and God. And I, I put it that way because it's like math. It is you, then we, you add me, and we add God, and that's what it's all about. But that's the truth. In 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul, again, he's, he's talking to the church in Corinth. And if you ever want to study anything out and try, you know, in terms of, of race, I think the church in Corinth gives you a good picture. Even though they didn't deal with race, they dealt a lot with class issues. So that, that's a good place to start. If, you, if you're trying to figure out how should we live as Christians and dealing with our own, the issues of racism, this is a good place to start. And in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17, Paul says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. You know what? Stop right there. Just imagine getting that. Like, I, I can't say anything good about you. When you come to church, you're actually doing more harm than good. What could that be? In, ver, in verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some, some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. But whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And We can stop right there. But eat and drink in remembrance. It's a very interesting passage, but I think about remember and I know what the opposite is, but I, I kind of think of another word opposing remembrance, and that is dismember. You know, you might think about um, taking off limbs or, or something like that, but that's kind of the picture because eating and drinking and taking the communions in remembrance is, a, is really about gathering and connecting 
picturing body parts, grafting, stitching, sewing together. You know, the Lord's Supper was a full meal at the end of the service back then. You know, you brought your food from home. And uh, what was starting to happen is some ate quickly and left early. All right, so just picture that. They're together for a family meal. Some people get there, they eat, and they bounce. Then there were some who had enough food and drink to get drunk, and others had very little, and they left hungry. So, so picture this. If you were wealthy in, in the church in Corinth, you brought a lot of food from, from home. If you were poor, you had very little. And the community meal was meant to be shared. And uh, Paul got, you know, intel. <laughs> he had somebody tell him, uh, talked about this, and the divisions were likely class divisions, and those who had much were not sharing with those who had little. And Paul's response is really, really direct. And here's the thing that I know I've probably looked at this for about 30 years the wrong way, you know, just thinking it was about, all right, communion is about, well, you got to examine you and make sure that you're right. You know, in fact, last week, uh, just after Rick started preaching, I realized, oh, man, I forgot to pick up communion. I ran to the back, and uh, there was a gentleman who came in outside and was asking for communion. And I said, okay, we were giving that to him. I said, you know, you can actually come in and stay. And um, he said, well, no, no, I, I mean, I usually go to this church or that church. You know, I'm just going to do, do this on my own, you know, but thank you. And, and it reminded me of this because... The Lord's Supper, again, it's that family meal. Here's, here's the, the more harm than good that happens at what Paul is talking about is when we don't, if we don't discern the body, if we don't recognize everyone else around us in our fellowship, that's when we're messing up with taking the Lord's Supper. It's not just about examining you, but you look around at everybody else and you make sure everybody else is okay. Because if we don't, we, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. So they weren't discerning or recognizing the church. Their class issues cause a separation for all of them. And if there's anything that we can take even from that, it's just being incredibly grateful for everyone around don't take anybody for granted. When, when you take the Lord's Supper and you got your cup, it's, it's, it's not just about you and God. <laughs> That's not how God wants it to be. You know, I want you to think even, this applies even to our worship. You know, okay, let's get some help if we need. Amen. All right. Okay, everybody doesn't need to go up. All right. See, even this, even this is important. We want to recognize everybody. Make sure everybody's doing well. Amen. 
See, the, as I was about to say, it is like our worship. It is like singing. Uh, because there, I know there was a time where we focused really on our, our vertical worship. And um, that's important. You know, it is. You do have to connect with God. But sometimes, and I can have conversations with people who would feel like, man, I, it's easier for me if I'm not in the building because I can actually connect with God. But that's actually, that's just half, that's half of the equation because that's, it, you're missing out on the me and God. <laughs> Same thing with communion. We can't, we, we can't miss that stuff. It's incredibly important. It's so important that it shows up in Scripture. And Paul says, when you do this, you might as well stay home because you're not, you're not helping anybody. It's actually causing more harm if you don't recognize your brothers and sisters. You know, today, if there's somebody that you're not speaking to, you know, or if you're harboring a, a grudge, you know, you're bitter against somebody and you're hoping that something bad happens to them, I mean, that, it means that you believe that you're a sinner saved by grace, but you're not living it. There's no way that you can maintain a grudge and bitterness against someone while expecting that God is going to forgive you. And, you know, let me tell you, regardless of who you are, you need it. You need the forgiveness. You're not remembering. You're eating judgment against yourself. So make a commitment to reconcile. So, but if you can't do that, that's when you shouldn't take communion. It doesn't mean if you have an issue... Like right now, if you've got some, some issue with somebody, make a plan in your own head, in your own heart. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to change. I'm going to repent. I'm going to be reconciled, take communion, and then go do what you need to do. But the Lord's Supper connects us to one another and to God. And one of the things that I always would think about was how the Apostle John uh, was exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian. And it, it never made sense to me because if you know Domitian, you know how he was paranoid, he was cruel, and he was ruthless. You know, he, he purged his own senate, he sent many philosophers into exile, and he arranged the murder of a priestess of Vesta. Now, this was a, a young woman who, he had her buried alive in a specially constructed tomb. Not a nice guy, but it's said that he respected John's convictions. So he understood that John, John, if John were to be killed, John was fully expecting he was going to see God. And so Domitian thought, oh, no, I'm not going to kill you because there'll, there'll be some satisfaction in that for you. And I'm not going to let you go back and be with the church. I'm going to exile you where you have, you don't get to be with God and you don't get to be with the church, that's your punishment. And some of us kind of accept that as our reality. To that being separate, being away, that that's better. I mean, if you ever think, why, what, you know, why are you guys talking about coming to church so much? This is Why? If the Apostle John could have it his way, 
he wouldn't even be fine with YouTube. Now, again, and let me just make plain that if you're physically not able to be here in person, YouTube is the way to go. Zoom is the way to go. That's, that's why we took great pains to, to set up the technology. We got Jimmy Blaine, who he's leaving us next, you know, after next week. Yeah, applaud for Jimmy, but somebody take his, take his spot, too. Don't just clap. Volunteer. But for John, it wasn't death, but isolation from God's people that was the punishment. So I'm going to say again, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, don't take this time for granted. It's you and me and God. So let's pray for the communion and our continued time with God together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we, we love you. We, we honor you, Father. We're incredibly uh, grateful for all that you do to keep us uh, safe and protected in, in this world where we're dealing with a, a spiritual battle, things that we can't even see. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for Jesus, uh, for his life, for his example, and ultimately for his death, but and for his resurrection. We're grateful for that, Father. Uh, so as we take the bread, which does represent his body, and we take the fruit of the vine that represents his blood, help us to do this as we remember you and we recognize our brothers and sisters around us. We pray all this in Christ. Amen.